this is Allison Sheridan of the No Cellicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 24th, 2019, and this is show number 724. Well, if you're hearing this before Monday at 10 a.m., remember we'll have a live chat going on during the Apple announcement at 10 a.m. Pacific time on Monday at podfeet.com slash chat. I hope you'll join us if you have the time. Well, this week I was joined by, I'm sorry, I joined Rob Dunwood and Chris Ashley on the SMR podcast. As always, we had a complete blast. If you haven't ever heard that show before, it's these two guys along with Rod Simmons where they talk tech uh, and then they've got gaming, sports, movies, and even social issues sprinkled throughout. They had me on to talk about the new iPads coming out and more stuff, but I started out by telling a story about boxer Sugar Shane Mosley. You won't want to miss that. You can find the show at smrpodcast.com. It's episode number 407, and the delightful title is Surface or iPad with Allison Sheridan. When this week's programming by Stealth, Bart Bouchats teaches us the last two concepts in mustache, one of which is a real headbender, and for me at least, the second half was almost as hard. Well, the first thing he taught us was how you can add an optional third argument to a mustache view, which is actually a function within a function, and technically it has a function within that. It's a very meta concept, and it was pretty hard to cram into Allison. Well, the second thing he taught us is the use of mustache partials, which are templates within templates. I was so glad to have a second meta thing to learn. It was a little bit easier, but still a bit of a headbender. But I expect you'll follow along faster than I did, but I think I got there in the end. As always, you can find Programming by Stealth either in the Programming by Stealth feed in your podcatcher of choice or in the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed. We've got the only other interview that we did during CSUN, and uh, it's kind of hard to follow the company names here, but the product is very cool. It's Sonova, Phonak, and Roger are all three different company names. I think one is a subset of the other is a subset of the other. Kind of meta, like Chit Chat Across the Pond was. Anyway, I just want to do a little introduction. Um, at the beginning, you're going to hear me talking to a woman, and then suddenly you're going to hear a man's voice. This, the guy that starts talking, uh, we eventually do find out who he is, but he's a customer of the product. And that's what was really cool was he was jumping in trying to say the stuff he thought was cool. He, he starts talking about how this product works with his cochlear implant. Anyway, I don't want to uh, give up any more of it, but uh, let's go ahead and hear the interview from Sonova. I'm in the Sonova Phonak booth with Helena Rydell, and she's got a banner behind her that says Assistive Listening Devices for College. Tell us about this, Helena. Well, it's uh, definitely assisted listening devices that would help students that's hard of hearing and also students with autism and auditory processing disorder. It would help them focusing in the classroom. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Now, you're holding, this is audio and video, by the way, so I'll be describing as well as you what it is you're holding. So, what do you have in your hand there? Okay, I have a Roger Pen that is one of our most popular microphones for the schools and it, it is a directional microphone that you can either clip through the clothing or hang around your neck. It's also an interview style microphone where you can hold it in front of the person that is talking and it helps the students that's hard of hearing. Also, you can put it on the table and it becomes a table microphone and it's, it 
picks up six feet omni. So oh, wow. So I'm looking at this thing. It just looks like a pen. Right. It's, got a, it's got a clip on the back, so that's where you just clip it onto your, onto your clothing. Right. And I can see a micro USB uh, uh, port on the other end and a couple of buttons. That's right. very elegant looking. Right. It doesn't look janky, you know. No. It just looks nice. It looks smooth. It looks, yeah. And it's very simple right. for, for the teachers. They don't want clunky big things and hanging. Like around. this giant microphone I'm shoving in your face, right? It's a lot more subtle than that. <laughs> yeah. No, no problem. Okay, so so that's the microphone. Now, right. what's the rest of this? Okay, the rest of it. Then we have then we have a Roger Roger Select, and the Roger Select is one of our microphones that you also can hang as a directional microphone. So this is a cylinder, or is is a small circular device. I don't know, smaller than the bottom of a teacup. I would call right, it right. in diameter. And it's got six microphones. So when you put put it on the table, when you put it on the table, you can see here if you put it on. She's turning it on right now. So it's got six little slots. Oh, he's got one turned on over here. It's bright green. So right now it's picking up all in our direction. It can detect who it's speaking. Oh, okay. And it will focus on me right now, but I'm talking. If you're talking, we'll notice that I know where you the microphone that I directed at you. Oh, I see what's going on. Christian Vogler has joined us to help uh, in the conversation here. Oh, okay, with your cochlear implant? Okay, cool. Now, we've got two microphones going, but how are we hearing? Oh, you can, you, it's a multi-talker network, so you can connect several microphones to the receiver, and you will still hear. So what is the receiver? The receiver is this. Okay, I'm going to shut this off. Got to save batteries. This was is the one of the receivers we have. It's a MyLink, and it it's got a neck loop, and the neck loop will connect with the T coil in the hearing aid. Oh, I see. So this is a, this is a separate receiver that, that receives transmit, transmits up to the to my, the my microphone, and it also have a, a, an outlet for headsets. So you can, if you don't have hearing aids, or if you, for example, don't have T-coil, and you you can't use the ear level receiver, another ear level receiver we have, then you can use headphones. Oh, I see. And like you were saying, for people with autism, right. they might not be hard of hearing, but they need the help focusing. They could just use headphones. Right. Exactly. They can use. And we have for autism and auditory processing disorder, we have another receiver that looks like a hearing aid. But it is a receiver, but we don't have it here to show it. So that that's one of them. I see. I see. Now, Christian, so um, you've got these, uh, can hear from these microphones, you said, to your cochlear implant. But uh, so you're not using one of these, uh, the receiver. Oh, I wouldn't do this normally because the cochlear implant um, process has to be seen in and the wireless connectivity is much more robust than using a neck loop. A neck loop um, is susceptible to electromagnetic interference. It's probably not a problem here, but for instance, if I go into the metro in my home city or have an old home that has unfeated electrical wires, that wouldn't work particularly well, but this does with the direct connect. Okay, so so you're saying that the uh, this this transmitter receiver would run into problems, but you can hear directly from these these tiny directional microphones into your cochlear implant directly. Is that, did I understand um, that correctly? It actually has a small receiver in here. Oh, now he's taking it off, showing it to us. Oh, okay.
The disability coordinator will help the students and we can help them out by giving them a trial period so that can, students can try it and see if they like it or if it works for them. But, uh, for example, if it is a consumer, then they need to go to an audiologist. Oh, I see. So you would get this from an audiologist. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Okay, it, so if they want to see these products, is there a website they can look at, though? Yes, uh, that, it's morethanahearingaid.com more than a hearing aid.com. Yeah. All right, great. Thank you very much. Thank this was you. great. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Christian. I'm sorry? Thank you. Oh, sir, sure. you're welcome. So, you know, I tell you another cool thing. So, you know, there's a lot of noise here, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, with this, and with this combined, I can hear you all of the voices very, very clearly about the noise. It's really easy to hear you even from a distance. So you might be hearing us better than I'm hearing you. Well, so I'm not sure about that. Your voice sounds clear to me, but um, I don't hear the voice the same way here in person would. So I'm not as good as at understanding things as you are. So well, I do, we can't trade ears to compare, can we? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for your assistance on this, though, Christian. Thank you very much. You. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I don't think we've ever had somebody jump in as a customer of a product and want to participate in the interview, but I think that worked out. Back when Steve and I were at CES, we did an interview with a company called Solo New York. As the VP of Marketing, Sirkan Ozturkan, explained, Solo New York is a lifestyle brand for bags. They make backpacks, tablet cases, briefcases, messenger bags, sleeves, totes, duffels, and work bags. In the interview, we played around with one of the bags called the Region Backpack from their Varsity Collection. Well, Solo New York was nice enough to send me the Region Backpack to try out as my daily driver. I've been carrying my computer gear around in it for a few weeks, and I have to say, I am in love with this backpack. Let's back up a little bit and talk about requirements for an ideal backpack. These are my requirements. Of course, yours might be different, but it's important to know the context to know whether what I like is going to be what you're going to like. One of the primary things I look for is a lightweight bag. I'm going to be carrying a 15-inch laptop, a nearly 13-inch tablet, a couple of charger banks. Sometimes I carry my giant RAV power power bank to power my MacBook Pro. I've usually got a, water, a bottle of water and a few pounds of cables. The last thing I need is for the bag itself to be heavy too. And I know maybe that's like ordering a Diet Coke with your Big Mac and large French fries, but you get my point. My next set of requirements is about pockets. There's a delicate balance between enough compartments and not too many. 
Steve has a Swiss Army backpack that's awesome, but I think there are approximately 127 separate compartments in which to hide things. The constant search of those secret pockets is a game we often get to play. Now, my backpack needs a computer sleeve compartment, a big compartment for my chargers, battery packs and cables, and it needs a quick access pocket for things like my phone and my business cards. It's also preferred if it has a side pocket for a water bottle. I want padding against my back, preferably with that netting that lets it breathe, and I need a small handle on the top for easy pickup without using the straps. For years, I've been using a backpack that I got as a press gift from CES. It was black with a flaming turquoise and green CES logo, along with a Seagate logo, who was evidently the sponsor that year to help pay for it. You might think I chose to show it off, you know, show off how I was press at CES, but it was actually a great backpack that met most of my needs. It was really, really light. Dave Hamilton used his for years, too, because it was such a great bag. Whenever we got together, we were backpack buddies. Well, this bag met my requirements pretty well, and I really had no excuse to get a new one. It had enough pockets, but not too many, but it really didn't have an easily accessible but small-ish pocket for my phone. It did have a perfect little pocket for business cards or my headphones, but when that pocket was unzipped, it would actually flip open and drop the pocket, whatever was in it, out. The bag was really, really light, like I said, and it could hold both my 15-inch laptop and my 12.9-inch iPad Pro and a giant pile of cables. Often, I would even cram my big girl Olympus Micro Four Thirds camera in there, too. It had pockets for a short water bottle, but the longer ones would often fall out when I laid the bag down, say, under an airline seat or under the seat in front of me at a conference. This bag has been to India, Nepal, Peru, Ecuador, France, and Belgium, plus an awful lot of U.S. locations. With all of this travel, this darn bag has no signs of wear and tear. I wish I could tell you the manufacturer, but it came from a company that does branded merchandise called Blue Chip Promo. Put the link to that in the show notes, but I don't know, I'll never never understand companies that don't put their names somewhere on the things they produce. So, the bag Solo New York sent me was from that they swankily call their varsity collection. I sound like I'm in college, don't I? Anyway, the specific bag I received is called the Region Backpack. Let's see how it matches up to my requirements. The Region isn't quite as light as my CES backpack, but it's still in the ultralight category. It's mostly constructed out of a lightweight but sturdy-feeling nylon. I might worry about a nylon bag, but the stitching around every pocket appears to be really good. It has thick padding on the back with the nylon mesh for breathability that I was looking for. I didn't put this next thing in my requirements list, but I really should have. The Region Backpack has a stitched-in strap around the back about halfway up that allows you to slide it over the handle of your luggage. This allows you to roll your luggage and keep the backpack stable on top of the luggage. I cannot tell you how many times my computer-laden backpack flipped around the handles when I was dashing through an airport. The straps on the Region Backpack are fully padded and it has a small, sturdy handle on top for a quick pickup. The Region may have one major pocket more than I need, and you know, that's a delicate balance, but this might be something I can be trained on. There's a big pocket with a slightly padded laptop sleeve area, and in front of that sleeve, I can stack my giant big girl iPad. This pocket is big enough that I'm kind of tempted to drop in other items, and that's where I ran into memory issues of, wait a minute, which pocket is that in? In my old backpack, I only had one big area. Well, outside of the laptop area, there's also this other much bigger pocket, and this is obviously where all of my chargers and cables should go. I like 
segregated pockets for organization as much as the next girl, but a giant cavern for one compartment is very necessary, because I've even been known to throw in a lightweight jacket, so malleable space like that is great. The region has a third, relatively big compartment, but rather than a big cavern, it's got some dedicated little pockets. It has a slot that can hold a smaller iPad or a Kindle. It's got some pen slots and two little pockets that would be perfect for my business cards and my headphones, not flipping out on the floor. On the front, it's got a single vertical zipper that has a sleeve that would be perfect for a phone and maybe something else small. Big enough, but not so big I'd be tempted to fill it up with a bunch of glop. It does look like an obvious zipper for a pickpocket, though, so might not be the best place to put it. Anyway, the more convenient for us, the more convenient it is for the bad guys, right? Well, the netted pockets on either side are much deeper than those on my CES bag, and they hold my water bottle very snugly so that it definitely will not fall out. If you pack the backpack properly, the bag even stands up on its own with this tough vinyl surface on the bottom to protect your belongings. But let me tell you why I truly, deeply love this backpack. If you saw the video or heard the interview from CES, you'll know it's the zippers. Plain and simple. Now, do this for me. Close your eyes if you're not driving or skiing or bike riding. Close your eyes and imagine you're holding a backpack with one hand. And you need to hold, you need to open a zipper from one side all the way over to the other side. What happens? You get to the first corner and the zipper pauses. You jiggle it a little bit and you get it going until it gets to the next corner. This corner is a little bit more stubborn, so you have to jam the backpack under your armpit, hold the edge of the corner with your other hand while you finish unzipping. You know exactly what I mean, don't you? Well, the zippers on the Solo New York bag are like nothing I've ever felt before. You can one-handedly unzip any of the compartments from beginning to end without any slowdown on the corners. I mean, like some of these corners are almost square like any backpack has to be, and yet it just goes, it's just, it's a marvelous thing. The zippers have two handles, so you can align them together on the left, right, or at a jaunty angle somewhere in between. And the zippers even have little T-shaped handles for easier grabbing. I find myself zipping and unzipping them just for the joy of it. Last week when I was at CSUN, I suggested to Aliha Dudley that uh, she play with my zippers. She couldn't see the bag, but just kept zipping and unzipping them and saying, ooh. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating her enthusiasm, but she did start asking more questions immediately about the bag after feeling the zippers. So I'm not making this up. I bet there are those of you who are thinking I'm a weirdo for spending 1,500 words on a review of a backpack, but I bet there are way more of you thinking, I need another computer backpack. I really wish I could give you an Amazon affiliate link to this product, but it's only for sale directly through solo-ny.com, and there's a direct link to this exact product in the show notes. The Region Backpack and the Varsity Collection, get this, it's only 65 bucks U.S., at that price, even if you don't buy this backpack, they've got tons of other models and types of bags that just might delight you. Plus, the zippers, right? Alistair Jenks is back with another one of his wonderful reviews. Back in 2006, I purchased a compact drive PD70X, a battery-powered portable hard drive, mine was 40 gigabytes, that sported a number of memory card slots in one end. While away from home, I could whip a memory card out of my camera, replacing it with another, place the filled card into the slot on the PD70X, and push a single button to start transferring the contents of the card onto the hard drive. Once done, the card was available for reuse later. 
When I got home, I'd have the contents of the dumped memory cards on the hard drive, which I could attach via USB to my computer for ingesting to my usual storage and workflows. The PD70X was a very cost-effective way to expand my storage, and when not out taking photos, I could use it as a regular USB drive for other purposes. Fast forward to 2019 and the PD70X is obsolete. Its SD card slots read only original SD cards, not SDHC nor SDXC that I now use. Also, in 2006 I was taking photos that were 6 megapixel JPEGs and now I have 24 megapixel RAW files. With a two week holiday coming up later in the year, I purchased a 128 gigabyte SD card. I use and recommend the SanDisk Ultra range, which will probably last me the trip space-wise but I'm not happy with the idea of the only copy of those photos being on that solitary card for so long. It would be nice to be able to make a copy somewhere while I'm still on holiday. My first thought was to use my iPad. I have the camera connection kit so I know I can copy the photos onto the iPad, but it's only a 32 gigabyte iPad. I could send the photos up to a cloud service, but those are somewhat limited in size too and I couldn't be sure that good enough Wi-Fi would be available. And just how long would it take to send all those photos? What I really need, I thought, is the modern equivalent of the PD70X. So I set about some searching. What I found, and bought, was the Western Digital My Passport Wireless Pro. I bought the 2TB model, but it also comes in 1TB, 3TB and 4TB sizes. There's an SSD range too that comes in sizes from 250GB to 2TB. While tempted by the SSD model, I wasn't prepared to pay over four times the price for 2TB. The 2TB hard drive model has a recommended retail price of US$180. The unit is 126mm square and 22mm deep, including four small rubber feet. A hard drive and a rechargeable battery don't come light, so it is reasonably heavy at 400 grams. Something to bear in mind when travelling. On the outside are four blue LEDs which indicate power and activity, a power button, an action button, the SDXC card slot, a USB 3.0 socket for connecting other USB storage devices, including cameras, and one of those slim USB 2.0 ports which is used for charging the unit, or in reverse, to use the battery in the unit to charge other devices. For my purposes, the key function is that I can insert an SD card in the slot, turn the unit on, and it will automatically copy the contents of the card onto the internal drive. But the My Passport Wireless Pro can do quite a bit more. In addition to grabbing content from other storage devices, it can also act as a power bank. And there are extra features available via the built-in Wi-Fi, made possible by the fact that the My Passport Wireless Pro runs Linux. The Wi-Fi can be used two ways. Either the unit can act as a wireless access point and you can connect your devices directly to it, Or you can have the unit connect to a regular Wi-Fi network, allowing it to see the internet, required for over-the-air software updates, and for any devices already on that network to see the My Passport Wireless Pro. In either mode, you can connect any device to the administrator console to make settings changes, update the software, and access the contents of the hard drive. You can do this via a web interface or a companion iOS app. Most usefully for travellers, you can use the standalone Wi-Fi mode to stream content directly from the My Passport Wireless Pro to your devices with no need for a local Wi-Fi network. I found the operation of the device a little bit fiddly, not up to Apple-like simplicity standards, 
but ultimately got almost everything to work how I wanted it to. The one thing I thought would be ideal is its ability to run a Plex server on device. However, I found this terribly confusing to operate and will probably resort to basic streaming using the iOS app. For my purposes, I will get the peace of mind of being able to copy my photos onto the drive each day. It can automatically copy only files it has not previously copied and leave it in the hotel safe so in the worst case if I lose my camera bag over the side of a boat, I'll at least have a previous day's photos still. Additionally, I will have an easy option to browse those photos directly from the hard drive and export them to photo apps on my iPad or iPhone for sharing. The bonus for me is the streaming. After discussing Plex as too complex, I turn the default Twonky media server back on, which turns the My Passport Wireless Pro into a standard DLNA server. While you can use the Western Digital MyCloud iOS app to stream content, you'll be stuck with the standard supported media codecs. I downloaded the iOS version of VLC, which saw the drive as an available server and I was quickly able to stream anything VLC could handle. I tried it with a Blu-ray rip of a Harry Potter movie and it was crisp and smooth. Overall, I found the My Passport Wireless Pro to be a little bit fiddly, but with a little practice, a very usable and useful addition to my travel kit. That really sounds terrific. It doesn't solve a problem I have because I always carry my computer with me, but I know uh, a lot of people have been looking for something exactly like this to solve this same problem. My friend Diane in particular, I know she's going to buy it based on this recommendation. Well, Apple went on a tear this week, announcing new products one day after another. We had speed bumps to the iMac line that were nice, and of course, the new and improved AirPods are really cool too. I got mine on order as there weren't any choices to be made. You pretty much, it was wireless case or not wireless case, but you knew you were going to buy it. But Apple also made some big changes to the iPad line. I wanted to see all of the iPads compared to each other, but I couldn't find it outlined in a succinct way place anywhere. Now, Apple does have a great comparison tool over at iPad, I'm sorry, apple.com slash iPad slash compare, but you can only see three models at a time, and I wanted to see them all. Apple's comparison tool is very complete, but that also means it has a lot of detail to absorb, and it's kind of hard to tell which one do I want. In case you didn't follow the news, in addition to the two existing iPads Pro and iPad Nothing that we already had, we finally have an upgrade to iPad Mini and a new model of iPad Air. So that means there's technically now five separate models of iPad to choose from. I was going to be on the SMR podcast to talk about the new iPads, so I decided to create a little comparison chart of my own so I could speak somewhat intelligently about it. Anyway, that's exactly what I did. And in the show notes for what I'm talking about right now, you actually will see this very chart. I tried to grab just the big hitter specs and those that would differentiate one model from the next for my comparison chart. After I laid in the big hitters, I added color to each row to highlight the differentiation. These colors are entirely my subjective judgment. For example, if we look at price, I decided that the $999 price of the 12.9-inch iPad Pro deserved to be red. The 11-inch iPad Pro at $799 feels yellow to me, and as does the $499 for the iPad Air. That leaves the iPad Nothing at $329 and the iPad Mini at $399. They get to be green. See what I mean about being subjective? Well, some features can't really be designated as red, yellow, green, though. For example, I love my 12.9-inch iPad Pro, but I'm also going to buy a 7.9-inch iPad Mini. So size isn't bad or good, it's just what you want. 
So my line on size is not color-coded. In some cases, very specific things jump out of the chart because of the color code. iPad Nothing is the only iPad in the entire line with a terrible front-facing camera. All models have a 7-megapixel front camera, camera except for the iPad Nothing, which is a 1.2-megapixel camera. That for sure deserves a red. But it's only $329, and if you have no intention of using the front-facing camera, that, pri that price might make it the perfect device for you. One huge thing about the new iPad Mini and iPad Air is that they are the first iPads outside of the Pros to support Pencil. But an important distinction from the Pro models is that these new devices support the first-generation Pencil, which means they charge via lightning. I can't wait to see how funny my iPad Mini looks with Pencil sticking out of the side. I think the Pencil's actually bigger than the device. It ought to be really comical. So now the only device without pencil support is iPad Nothing. In a way, I kind of buried the lead on that. While the iPad Pro line has a USB-C port, the newly announced iPads do not. Now, Lightning isn't a bad thing, and in fact, some people may still prefer it because they already have all of the cables. But USB-C really is the way to go for the future and is going to allow us a lot more flexibility with these devices. So I chose yellow, not red, for Lightning, but USB-C is clearly a green. The, older uh, the other older technology built into the new iPads is Touch ID instead of Face ID. Again, there are some who might prefer Touch ID, possibly because their phone still has it and the consistency of interface is really nice. But like USB-C, Face ID is the future. Plus, you don't get the critical Memoji tool without Face ID. So I've got to give the Touch ID iPad Mini and iPad Air a yellow for having Touch ID. Now it's notable that there are a few categories where most, if not all, of the iPads have a good feature. With the exception of the older iPad Nothing, for example, all of the iPads could do 1080p on the front camera, which is, is just, just great. One of the amazing things about the iPad lineup is that the processors in all of them are good. I marked iPad Nothing yellow because it's got an A10 processor, but that's only because the others have A12 and A12X. The A12 and iPad Mini and Air, that's the same processor that's in the flagship iPhone XS. So I went green for all models except iPad Nothing, but like I said, it still gets a yellow for the A10. That's still a really, really good processor. I left some specs out of the chart that could matter to you, but they're kind of advanced to explain and hard to do in a color-coded chart. For example, if you're someone who knows what difference a fully laminated display and wide-color P3 and True Tone makes, then you're probably not the person considering an iPad nothing. And it's the only model that doesn't have it. Same thing with ProMotion graphics. If you care, you're going to be the kind of person who's buying an iPad Pro and not looking at my trade-off chart at all. Anyway, enough explanation of my chart. I hope you take a look and I hope it helps you understand the different models and explains the models to your friends and families to help them choose the right iPad Pro. I will be awaiting your emails telling me what I left out and how you disagree with my color coding. One of the many cool things about Patreon is that it's so very transparent. Listener Yope, also known as Owet Grennan, won the Support the Show contest this week. He noticed over on Patreon that the total contributions per NoSilicast episode was sitting at $99. He decided that eyesore needed to be fixed and doubled his contribution to make it so. How fun is that? 
Well, if you'd like to be fun like Yope, head on over to podfeet.com slash Patreon and start a weekly contribution to the shows. It's an easy way to show your appreciation for the content you get from the Podfeet podcasts. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats, and we have a big story this week for sure, huh, Bart? Yeah, we do. We, we have one security medium, but it's it's a chunky one. Um, yeah. Chewy. Chewy. It tastes quite bad, actually, I'll be honest. It's, it's even a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> I do want to do a teeny tiny bit of follow-up before we get stuck into the security medium, though. So last time you said that Americans had been lucky enough to escape the Momo panic, which gripped most of Europe, and particularly the British Isles, and you said you I hadn't heard about it at all. Was. Sorry, which one was that? which one was that? Momo. Yeah, but I don't remember which what it was. It was a whole big panic here. We didn't go into it in much detail in the show because you hadn't heard of it. It was like, oh, it's fine because basically it was it was one of these things where the whole world went, ah, this is terrible, and there was no there there. Right? It, it was your typical oh, okay. your typical urban legend that just because of the internet, it came, it came, it did its thing, and it went in the space of a week. Well, you know, <laughs> when the case of the ring took years, you know, in this case, right. It was, but anyway, Reply All did a whole episode about it, um, which is a very interesting podcast. It's a podcast about the internet. Oh. All right. So this it, this is a uh, is basically a hoax. It's a hoax. Yeah. It's oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, urban legend hoax, whatever you want to call it. It just they just happen so quickly now. They come and they go within the space of a week or two. And this one happened to gestate in Northern Ireland, so we got a front row seat for this one. Great. And in fact, it came up over coffee and work, um, where parents were discussing about the fact that they have to sit their children down and have this very difficult conversation with them about what could happen to them on YouTube. And they sort of did. And then the next day, they were all going, yeah, so it turns out it's not true. And I just scared my own kid for no reason. Uh, Yeah, that's kind of the ultimate tragedy to save our kids. Oh, well, someone think of the children resulted in the parents traumatizing their own kids needlessly. Anyway. So yeah, Reply All did a really good episode on And if you don't listen to Reply All, it's a bi-weekly podcast, I think. It's usually about a half an hour long, and it is about something on the internet. There have been episodes on, like, you know, what happens if someone tries to take over your Instagram? Why do people dox people? You know, I mean, all sorts of things that crosses with what we do. And every meme you've ever come across. Um, one of my one of my favorite installments is where the, the young guys school... The network owner, who's obviously a bit older, um, these modern memes, and they call it yes, yes, no, where basically they ask, you know, do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? And then it comes to to, to the guy who runs the whole network, and they go, he goes, no. And then they have to, you know, educate him about the meme. It's, it's quite good. I usually oh, don't know it either. Nice. So I learn a lot. <laughs> I just subscribed. That sounds fun. It's uh, That's from Gimlet, which is one of the, that's that company that uh, Spotify just bought. Yes, and they actually have some really good stuff. Um, I, I listen to quite a few Gimlet shows. Science Versus would be another amazingly good one I would recommend from them. Uh, oh, cool. Basically breaks it down, you know, okay, fine, we've all heard this controversy. What does the science actually say? It's it's extremely well done. Uh, their last really? episode, they, they always say at the end of the episode of Science Versus how many references they have in their show notes. hundred and something for the last oh, episode. Oh, wow. Okay, so they're not fooling around. Not fooling around. Actual not, science. Not, not seat of their pants. <laughs> not seat of their pants, and they take on the big stuff, like gun control, 
vaccines. Like, you name the controversy, and there are times when the science doesn't agree with the liberals, and there are times when the science doesn't agree with the conservatives. They don't care. And it turns out science doesn't care either. Yeah, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you, as I, Neil deGrasse Tyson would put it, it. The first time I ever heard that said was, um, oh, who's the astrophysicist everybody loves? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, uh, what was it? It was just, it, physics doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's Bill Nye, right. the science guy, says the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. He's, he's correct. <laughs> anyway, so we have our medium that we've already teased, so let's, let's stop teasing it. So, um, All right. Facebook accidentally stored passwords in plain text since 2012. That's the <sighs> one-sentence version. It's not all passwords. It's just a few tens of millions of them. Um, or sorry, a few hundreds of millions of them. Um, so... They have a whole bunch of different apps, and I'm sure they run other stuff internally within the company as well, where they're testing stuff out and they're playing around with stuff. And it's quite normal for an app to log stuff. And in fact, it's very, very normal for apps to log stuff to some sort of central repository of all logs. Something, you know, some sort of centralized syslog server. These days, Elasticsearch is very popular for this kind of thing. But it's normal to log all of your errors and things, or even your debug messages. And then, as a developer, you would go searching those logs. It's like, oh, has this bug come up before? How often has this bug come up in production? Oh, wow, 1% of our users hit this bug. We really should prioritize it. I mean, there's a million and one sane and sensible reasons to log all sorts of stuff and to make that log searchable. The problem is... you're for passwords to be in those logs? That's the problem. You're not supposed to log sensitive data. You're not supposed to log... Even in a debug log, you should not be logging credit card numbers, passwords, dates of birth. There there are things you don't log. And unfortunately, not all of the engineers within Facebook got the message. So while it is normal in a debug log to just dump your data structures, you are supposed to apply some intelligence before you do it. And that bit appears to have been missing. It seems so, like this is sort of a programming 101 sort of thing, not a delicate subtlety that might have been missed by anybody. Well, not really, because we all know that if you want, if you're trying to make a program work, you print out the variables. What state is this variable in now? Right. You just do that without thinking okay. as a programmer. What, but if you're using console.log or whatever, and there's a whole bunch of plumbing installed, the to root those logs somewhere sensible, you've now gone and done something every programmer learns from day one of CS101, which normally just prints it to your screen, but it's not just gone to your screen, now it's off into a database forever. I mean, yes, it's 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 elementary, but it's not quite... It's not... I can see how it would easily happen. What's missing is a culture of security. Not rank idiocy. Okay. But either way, it's still... It's still a sign of not properly... Basically, if you do security after you get the program to work, this is the kind of thing that happens. If you think about security from moment one, this is the kind of thing you avoid. So it is a culture thing. I mean, I'm not saying they get off the hook. How could they have avoided it? What would they have had to have done? They had... I mean, the passwords have to be decrypted while this data is being collected, right? Right, but they don't have to be logged ever. Okay, okay, so just not thinking of it? 
just not thinking of it, right? Out of habit, you will log variable. When you're trying to debug something, you'll log the current value of, of all your variables just to see what they are, because chances are one of them isn't what you think it is. Right? I mean, you, you, you've done programming by cells. You will say, oh, no, no, but X definitely contains the, you know, the, this string. And I'll say to you, Alison, console.log it. And you go, oh, that's funny. Why does it contain that other string? And then you find your bug, right? That That's normal debugging. Right, right. You just shouldn't do that with passwords, credit card numbers, and other PII. So this is an internal log, though, not external, correct? Correct. Yes. So this is, a, this is an internal system, some sort of internal central logging system. The details we don't have. I, I can't tell you what technology it is. It's just an internal log database that was searchable. And so what we know is that about 2,000 engineers ran about 9 million queries against that central database that contained plain text passwords in the responses they received. So basically, there are 9 million times passwords were returned to engineers who probably weren't expecting them and who probably did nothing with them because that's not what they were looking for. They were looking for something else. But the thing is, you have to trust that not a single one of those 2,000 engineers, once they saw passwords, didn't think, oh, that's interesting. I could have some fun with this. Let me let me take a little copy of that bad boy. Yeah. And also, the flip side, 9 million times you got passwords back you weren't expecting and no one reported it. Yeah, what that's the hell sort the of a culture do you thing, have? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, this did come no, about due to an internal anything, audit. So they did eventually catch it seven years later. I mean, Facebook did catch this themselves. That is the one teeny, weeny, weeny, tiny sliver of light here. If you squint, you can make that be the good news? Yeah. However, what we now know is that hundreds of millions of Facebook light users, I'm not enough of a Facebookian to understand what that means. Tens light, did you say? Facebook light. L-I-T-E. Apparently, it's a thing for countries that. that have less bandwidth. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So apparently, it's the same Facebook data, but you get it lower resolution or something. So hundreds of millions of Facebook Lite users, tens of millions of other Facebook users, and tens of thousands of Instagram users are who we know are affected, for sure. So we don't know what happened to this data, but it would be improbable that nobody took it right yeah we can't assume no one we can't assume out of those nine million queries none of them were abused and this goes back to 2012 so what that means is the audit facebook conducted today has found passwords in logs going back to 2012 which means they're all in there because they found them today they found them this month so that means that every password you've ever used on Facebook since 2012 is affected. So you now have to think, okay, so I changed my password back in 2015 and then changed it again in 2015, and then where did I reuse all of those passwords? Jeez. This is why you need a password manager and why you need to never reuse any of your passwords. Because you can't right. do the maths on this. You just have to assume that you have to change your passwords everywhere you care about if you were a password reuser. Well, if you haven't already changed all of your passwords. If you, you haven't already been through it due to the Yahoo dump or one of the other previous mega blunders. 
Yeah, it's about time. I was quite proud of my family uh, when uh, Bart sent me a note and s- said this might be something horrible, and I don't think it means to panic yet. And then like a half hour later said, no, no, panic. This is definitely a really bad thing. Change change your Facebook password immediately. And I sent text to uh, all of my relatives and to uh, I called my mother-in-law on the phone and said, hey, can I walk you through how to fix this? And she felt so good the next morning when they opened the Wall Street Journal and on the front page was the article about Facebook storing passwords in plain text. And she was Brilliant. like, yep, I am on my game. She was really chuffed about it. That's super. Yeah, it it yeah. I mean, it's a big deal. Um, and yeah, you if you're a Facebook user, you really should change your password. And if you reused it, you have a lot of work to do. I doubt this is going to change any harassment, if you will, by the government or the governments of them. No, and this isn't this. This is just an honest to goodness blunder. This isn't abuse of data. This isn't malicious. This isn't. Getting caught with your fingers in the cookie jar. This is just dropping the china, right? Yeah, yeah. Kicking the ball through the greenhouse by mistake. This is not. I got caught doing something I knew I shouldn't be doing. This is just a whoopsie, which is refreshing. <laughs> Ish. That is the saddest thing you have ever said, Bart. <laughs> yeah, refreshing that they were just stupid. Yeah, the um that gets back to Mega Brony says we should have a scale on all of these from from stupid to sneaky. This is on the yeah. stupid side, really, really stupid, but yeah. stupid, not sneaky. Yeah, and it's actually a really important difference to bear in mind when people have this whole well, every company's the same. So and so leaked something. Did they? Is it the same to accidentally drop something and to throw it? Is is that really the same? Yeah, that's a good description. Yeah. You know, these or, kids or smashed my sneaky. windows versus they were playing football and, you know, they gave it a bit of a slice and it went through my window. Not the same thing. Now, if you dropped the china because you were holding it under your coat trying to steal it. <laughs> yeah, that's that, we're you're... back to the whole, you know, throwing stones rather than breaking glass with football by mistake. I mean, you know, it's yeah, I mean, yeah. really, it matters, you know. You know, and you know, you have Hanlon's razor. Don't assign to incompetence that. Don't assign to malice that, which can be explained by incompetence. But sometimes, like Facebook, does not benefit from Hanlon's razor in my average calculus. They lost that honor quite some time ago. Right. Right. Anyway, so the the only other minor thing that sort of caught my eye is that when Facebook made a post owning up to this, they titled it "Keeping Passwords Secure." I thought George Orwell would be delighted. <laughs> and this is, that is some amazing newspeak. You know, the preamble to that is what we didn't do, keeping passwords secure. Or keeping passwords right, secure, right. what we don't know how to do, but <laughs> keeping passwords secure. They, they could have called it our new data privacy policy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe a little bit worse. Right? Yeah. Oh, heavens to Betsy. Heavens to Betsy, indeed. So with that out of the way, we can dig into regular old news. Um, Notable security updates. It was patched Tuesday, so obviously there's a bunch of that to be done. Uh, Microsoft released updates to Windows, IE, Edge, Office, and SharePoint. And in that whole big clutter of bug fixes, there are two zero days that have been patched. So Patchy McPatcherson's there. Don't let that one languish. Um. An interesting note that's getting a lot of media attention, the Windows 7 users got a patch 
which basically popped up a message telling them they're coming to the end of their patches. Oh, that's interesting. So one of the updates basically just popped up a notice saying, by the by, you're running an OS that reaches end of life in January, at which point you will get no more of these updates. So the Microsoft team determined that Windows 7 is not going to do a Windows XP and shamble on as a you know, zombie forever. Uh, Adobe then released updates to Photoshop CC and Digital Editions. Um, the Photoshop CC one is, well, I guess if you use Digital Editions, it's just as important. Uh, WordPress 5.1.1 patches a critical bug that could allow complete site takeover. This is kind of one of the ones you should patch. Yikes. I don't know if I've seen that one come up yet. It went through automatic, so I knew it had happened when I got an email saying, your site has been updated to 5.1.1. And then I went to my RSS reader and I went, WordPress have patched a critical bug. And I thought to myself, yay. <laughs> I love you, WordPress. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what you want to see. Yeah. Um, I don't normally call out every update to Firefox and Chrome, but both of them have received a new significant release, both of which have patched a bunch of security bugs and both of which have added in new uh, functionality. So that's sort of why I'm calling them out. So Chrome 73, you get your security fixes as normal. You now also have the ability to switch the search to DuckDuckGo. Hmm. Exactly. That was my thinking exactly. No, my my thinking is that you couldn't already do that? But it's Google. Google's browser that makes you... Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Gotcha. When you sign into Gmail, you're signed into your Chrome browser. That is the one and the same action these days. They merged yeah. those together a few patches back and made people extremely cranky. But they will let you search with DuckDuckGo, if you like. I'm assuming it, they're still going to be tracking you through the browser you've installed. Right. <laughs> the whole browser is now part of the spying apparatus. But anyway, you can you can be spied <laughs> yeah, on while you use DuckDuckGo. Need- they don't need to spy you through your, your searches because they're spying you other ways, right? Right, yeah. I mean, the, the, literally, the browser is sending everything you do back and putting it in their cloud. That's it, interesting. They see it as a feature, not a bug. And This is in the category... Oh, go, go ahead. Well, I mean, you know, why is it that Google now knows so much about you? It's because Google knows so much about you. So if you really like it when Google now does smart things, well, okay. But Google knows everything about you. You know, take it or leave it. Some I people think we find had a chit chat about that, right? Right, exactly. So some people are delighted by it, and I'm horrified by it. Same data, same reality, same facts, different yeah. interpretation. Anyway, something you want from it? I, wait, but I do have a question about Chrome. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in the no fair category. Springing something on Bart, a technical question that I haven't told him I was going to ask him. Uh, but just in case you know the answer, mm-hmm. in a recent update, it was seventy one or seventy two. Chrome changed how you quit the app. Used to, every app on the Mac is Command-Q, right? Right. Command-Q does not quit Chrome. You have to hold down Command-Q and wait a second, and then it quits it. Um, but I would like to know how to they me. did that. What's that? That's not happening to me. I really? use Chrome in work because... I use different browsers for different hats, and so I figure I don't mind Google spying on the fact that I love Googling nerdy terms. And there is actually a strange advantage using Google for your nerdery. A lot of nerd things use words that also have meanings in plain English. And the fact that Google is spying on me all the time means that when I use a generic term, like mustache, say, Mm -hmm. Google just gives me results about JavaScript libraries. 
Which is what you actually want. Right? Which is what I actually want. So I actually use Chrome only for work stuff, only in work. But I do actually use Chrome. And when I hit Command-Q, it sods off. So I'm doing it right now. If I hit Command-Q, I get a little gray box pops up that says, hold Command-Q to quit. And I have to press and hold it and wait a second, and then it quits. Huh. I wonder if I find this thing. I wonder if I've got some strange extension causing that. I don't know. All I can say is, I didn't do anything special, and mine doesn't do that. Huh. I was so my question to you was going to be how the heck did Google change the default behavior of the way the Mac operating system works? Ah, right? No, okay, so no, they haven't because that is a convention, not an operating system feature. The app receives the command queue, the app then decides what to do with it. By convention, just about every Mac app uses it to quit. But it's not actually the operating system. The app receives that keystroke really? because the app is front. Every other app on the planet does what you expect, but they don't have to. And another example of an app that wouldn't is that doesn't behave like that would be things like text expander. And so, for generally say, uh, you know, if you quit me, your thingies will stop expanding. And Fantastical says, if you quit me, you know, I'm not going to be able to give you calendar yeah. updates. Yeah, there are some things that do that. I know screen sharing, for example, doesn't quit yes. because you might be meaning to quit inside the desktop that you're talking to yes so if they let you quit from the outside you might go oh man i got rid of the whole thing yes exactly so yes that keystroke actually goes like command s command q it goes to the app and by convention pretty much every app behaves according to the mac hig but their human interface guidelines okay so it is actually up to the app to decide how to respond to the keystroke from the user okay so i wonder where it's coming from Oh, it must be a Chrome feature. Maybe this. To enable this feature, go to the Chrome menu in the upper left and select Warn Before Quitting. Huh. For some reason, it thought oh. you'd like that. And it realized yeah, I would hate apparently. it. Official Google Mac blog. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> oh, that's I'm sure it's a so feature, it's Allison. Chrome? It is. Warn Before Quitting. Look at that. Huh. There you go. Well, thanks for doing that tech support for me in the middle of security bits, but I've been meaning no to problemo. ask you that for like six months. <laughs> I can imagine that would make me quite cranky, actually. So there we go. That's yeah. good. Right, uh, Firefox good. 66 then also patches a whole bunch of security updates. And in fact, in the case of Firefox 66, there's also Firefox 66.0.1 that fixes three other critical vulnerabilities. But anyway, Firefox 66 brought us um, autoplay blocking on Firefox. So catching up for, with Safari, which for is video nice. and audio and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. You know, I I just I brought up Firefox for some reason, probably because I was doing a security patch, which is I I don't generally use Firefox. Mm-hmm. The other day, my my website was just it's just dog slow, and I was just like, oh man, what's the matter? And I switched over to Firefox, and it wasn't slow at all. Huh. It's slow on Safari, and I don't know why. Safari hmm. has just suddenly turned into a slog for me, and so I'm, I might have to switch away and go over to, to Firefox for a while. But I do this well, every couple of years. I end up with a new fave, you know? Well, I was going to say, it's about three or four versions back now, Firefox switched to an entirely new rendering engine. Uh, I can't remember, but they gave it a fancy pants name. And they focused on making it snappy and quick, and they succeeded. Yeah, yeah. I might need to uh, switch over for a while because, I mean, it, it is a remarkable difference, not a slight mm-hmm. difference. Everything is faster, especially my own website. Interesting. 
Anyway, so there we go. There are two, two notable updates. So into notable news. Dear Windows users, beware of .reg files or .reg files. These are registry keys that you get as a file. So the registry controls so many things on Windows and you often need to change it to make some sort of setting happen or something. And the normal way is you do, right, you could open regedit, but the chances are you'll break your computer. So what generally happens is your, you know, your, your IT department will give you a .reg file or the internet will if you're stupid enough to click on one from the internet. Um, <laughs> what could possibly go what wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Exactly. Anyway, normally when you double click a .reg file, you get a little pop-up that says, you're about to alter the registry. Do you want to back out or will I go ahead and apply these changes? A security researcher has discovered that if you use a few special characters in the file name of the .reg file, you can change the text in the dialog to make it say anything you want. And you can change the text on the two buttons to say anything you want. So you can literally change yes to no. So wait a minute. If you're writing the reg file, why, do you, why wouldn't you be able to do anything you want? Okay, normally, I write a reg file. I give it to you. You double-click it. Windows pops up a warning telling you you're doing something really dangerous. Do you want to continue? I, okay. as the author of the malicious reg file, can change that dialogue by putting special characters in the name of the file I gave you. Okay. It's a Windows warning telling you oh. it's the equivalent of Office when the macro warning comes up, the bad guy being able to change the yes to a no. I got you now. Right? That's so really... Be... Okay, so you've got to be... You gotta have done something stupid, or your IT department's done something stupid to give you a reg file. Well, you've gone to the internet because you've Googled some sort of problem your computer's having. The internet's given you a reg oh, okay. file. You double click it, or you have some sort of thing that auto opens files, like maybe Safari likes to do on the Mac. Ah, uh, yeah. Right, and you're get, uh, the, the operating system is doing a smart thing and saying, "Are you sure?" But because Microsoft aren't sanitizing the file name, you can actually use the file name. You inject basically percent something, which means backspace, into the bloody file name, and it actually changes the value of the bloody warning box. Astonishing. Yeah. Now this is I can't picture this being something a lot of people would run into, would they? I can picture this being exactly the kind of thing that is going to be used in all sorts of uh, attacks that go after the squishy organic bit. If you can turn yes into so, no. Right, right. But what are the chances that somebody's going to download a dredge file? Oh, you're going to be fished, right? People attack you actively. Your inbox is, is, is full of people trying to get you to run stuff. I think it will be abused. Okay. I mean, it, it's far too good not to abuse. <laughs> it's just... Too tempting. Right, there's plenty of people out there trying to get you to run things in email by giving you all sorts of stupid stories. They work a lot of the time. This is just too easy. If you get to change the yes to a no and change the message, that's social engineering heaven. There's, you know, the operating system that's supposed to be protecting you can be made say whatever you, the attacker, want the operating system to say. (laughs) That's quite the advantage. 
Yeah. Now I'm just picturing the person who gets called by one of these scammers that says, uh, you know, uh, this is Microsoft calling to help you with your computer. And then up pops this reg thing saying, uh, this could damage your computer. You know, are you sure you want to do it? And the person going, oh, no, you better press press no on that for sure. Or the thing is, they also get to change the text. So it won't even say this could damage your computer. That's what it should say. It could say, we have found a virus. Do you want me to remove it? Yes. Right, right. Now, they can make that dialogue say anything. They don't have to mention the word registry in it. They don't have to mention the word danger in it. Click here for 500 free dollars. I was getting caught up on the concept of people knowing what a reg file is. But they don't, right? That, but I was thinking they would have to go looking for reg files. That's where I was getting hung up, I think. Yeah, but you can, I can email you anything. Right. I would trust you, Bart. Well, yeah, the thing is, and it might look like it came from me, but it could be from anyone. Oh, good point. I don't trust you at all now. Yeah. Trust no one. <laughs> Ever prejudice and vigilance, we keep saying it. What really scares me here is that Microsoft say they've evaluated this bug and decided it does not meet the threshold for fixing. Oh, really? So a few attacks in the so wild, and I imagine they might reevaluate their threshold. We shall see. Yeah. For now, beware I mean, of rich better files. than that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, beware of reg files is all I'll say. Security researchers have found a way of extracting Microsoft BitLocker encryption keys when full disk encryption is configured in its least secure configuration. Hmm. Now, don't panic. Don't set your hair on fire. Microsoft have always advised against the least secure configuration. And even if you do have it set in the least secure configuration, this is still not easy to do. This still involves creating some custom hardware to intercept a key as it moves across buses inside the computer. So... At least for now, until someone figures out a better way to do this, this is something that's only going to be used in a very targeted way against very high-value people who haven't set up their computer in the way Microsoft says you should. So yes, it's a bad headline. No, you shouldn't stop using full disk encryption. Even if you were to choose the the lower-end encryption? It's not lower-end encryption. It's to do... I, I don't use... Uh, BitLocker myself, so I would want to be careful what I say, but basically you can have it with a pin or without a pin. If you have it without a pin, I believe it just auto-logs you in, but it still encrypts the disk. That key oh, okay. can be picked up, but if you have it with a pin, you're fine. Okay. Okay. And Microsoft recommend having it with a pin, so if you're doing things as recommended, you're fine. Uh, researchers have found two zero-day exploits against Safari, uh, one of which gives complete takeover of the Mac, basically visit URL, arbitrary code execution as root. So basically full ownage. The good news in this story is that both of these vulnerabilities came to light in a hacking competition run by the Zero Day Initiative. Uh, And one of the nice things about the Zero Day Initiative is that their whole raison d'etre is responsible disclosure. That's literally what they exist for. Uh, so they have responsibly disclosed the details to Apple and have not published them. So assuming okay. Apple gets them fixed before someone malicious rediscovers them independently, there's no need to panic yet. We don't know what Apple's reaction to that was, though, right? Uh, nope. We never do. Right. So 
expect Safari patches would be what I would say. Yeah. In fairness, That's Apple are pretty good at patching Safari. Um, so I would expect this is the kind of thing they would be on. Uh, Google then got hit by a record-setting 1.69 billion... Well, okay, it translates into $1.69 billion because the Mac Observer translated it from euros to dollars. Um, I should have figured out what the actual euro amount was, but I forgot to. Anyway, the EU have fined Google a massive amount for antitrust violations over how their AdSense platform worked and how it excluded other competition in the market. Europeans don't like... Europeans... The European view on antitrust is it doesn't matter whether prices go up or down. If there's no competition, then it's bad. Whereas the American model at the moment is if the customer is getting stuff cheap, then it's okay. Which is why Amazon were not considered to be a monopolist, but Apple Books were, despite having a tiny percentage of the market. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Massive fine for Google. So that's something that's been in the works for a really long time, right? Yes, it has. Uh, it's a few year, yeah, the, the, these years. Yeah, these particular abuses stopped a few years ago because the EU Commission went cease and desist and Google went, sir, yes, sir. And now they've gotten around to, f- you know, finding them formally guilty and finding them for what they had done until they ceased and desisted. By the way, at today's exchange rate, that would be 1.41 billion euros. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Even for Google, that's that's not quite pocket change between the couch you know I, I know we don't want to go down the the rat hole of the spotify apple spat i'm sure that's in uh let's talk apple and will be for the next couple of years yeah <laughs> although well i'm already dreading in a good way this month show new hardware an announcement on monday and apple v spotify i'm certainly not going to be going i wonder what the main stories will be i'm going to Which be going i wonder how about? much i can throw in the bin because we're going to have no room for anything but the main stories Right, right. But the the one thing I thought, there's a lot of stuff I disagree with Spotify about, but uh, one of the things they said was if you go into the App Store and you put in a search term of music, it's a really long time till you scroll down to where you get to Spotify. And it's kind of like, well, Spotify is one of the biggest music providers, you know, there's a lot of other stuff. And you do, mm-hmm. of course, the Apple music much sooner. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, well, that one's kind of smells like what Google was doing. That that did look mm-hmm. odd. I, I've got to give them the nod on that one. Yeah, I don't think they're going to win on everything, but I don't think they're going to lose on everything. Yeah. I do think it's ironic that uh, uh, I, I never even said, in case there's somebody who hasn't heard of it, is, is Spotify is basically saying that uh, Apple is being anti-competitive because they uh, force you to go through the App Store and they take money from you and they have their own product in that space being Apple Music. That's kind of the broad brush piece of it. Um, But what I find ironic is that, as I just mentioned, Gimlet was bought by uh, Spotify. Spotify is a podcast player and they are now a a podcast content network. So they have essentially the same thing as as where what they're complaining about Apple doing, and they have really I mean, pretty cartoons pizza. showing how Apple is the referee and the player, and that's terrible. And they have literally, as of a few weeks ago, done exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like moral high ground. Whoopsie daisies! I've cut that out from under myself just as I was about to file that lawsuit. Whoopsie. Yeah, I think that I think that one's ironic. Yeah, and that they don't think they should pay Apple anything for the service of being in the App Store. Yes. I think that's adorable. Well, I have good news for you, Alison. You know the way I like to do bad news, bad news, bad news, and then switch to good news, good news, good news? We're about to make the switch. 
Oh, goody. I have no idea what confection they're going to call it after, but I do know that Android Q is coming this summer. And thanks to some uh, some stuff posted by Google, we know a little bit more about what's going to be in Android Q. And there's some really good news in there. I think the biggest one is that Android Q is getting iOS-style control over location data. That is to say, three levels of choice. Never and always, which is what Android has always had. And the Apple only one up until now... When only when the app is in the foreground. So in other words, you can grant an app access to your location when you're using the app, never or always. Fantastic. Really good to see that coming to Android. Yeah, what I've wondered is why all apps don't allow that. There are many apps that say all or nothing. That is the developer's choice. The API, Apple provides an API with three levels. The apps, the developer chooses to consume that API however they wish. Yeah. And, you know, so the developers are basically making the choice how user hostile am I going to be? And I guess different apps have different trade offs and they make it for their own unique and special reasons. But the API doesn't say you have to give the three choices, it says you can give the three choices. And then you, you know, right. so sort of you like can never get the location data that you're not granted, but you can decide to throw the rat out of the pram. <laughs> Throw the rattle out of the pram. I've never heard that one. Oh, it's a very common idiom here. It's whenever someone, you know, it's my ball and I'm going home. Sort of that, that sort of an oh, attitude. Okay. okay. Throw the baby out with the bathwater is what we would say. Oh, no, it's it, no, because throwing the baby out with the bathwater is different. That's uh, when oh, you're. Oh, that's and the bathwater. Yeah, this is just out of the pram, huh? Yeah, in other words, I'm just going to be throw a strop. I'm just going to get hissy at you. Have a little tantrum. Throw the rattle out of the pram. I don't, I don't know what a strop is. That's another very British idiom for having a little temper tantrum. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyway, um, the other thing that's in... There's two other things in there I want to draw your attention to. So the, the location stuff is big and good. The next good thing is that Android Q is going to lock down uh, app access to a bunch of unchangeable device identifiers like IMEI numbers, which are currently being abused to track users against their will. So that, again, Apple went through a similar phase of many years ago now of locking down the kinds of things iOS can see. At the moment, people are very cranky that a developer on iOS can't see the MAC address of any hardware on your iOS devices. And the reason is because basically people were abusing it as a permanent cookie. And so Apple went, fine, then no one can have access to it if people are going to be so abusive of these things. And That's why some we can't recent have nice things. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. So a few weeks ago, we actually reported on the latest reporting on exactly all the different ways uh, Android apps were abusing various permanent, unchangeable identifiers for tracking people against their will. And with Android Q, they're just stripping those functionalities out of the OS, which means that the APIs won't work anymore. So the developers can't abuse these things anymore. It's sad, but there we are. It's the right thing for Google to do. And then finally, I can't um, to find out what letter, what food starts with Q. Quince is the only thing I can think of, but it's not so much a What's dessert that? as a fruit. It's I've like a pear, but a little bit different. Hmm. Apparently, they make nice cakes. I have never had a quince, but I want one because it makes me think of terrible seventies TV about coroners. <laughs> okay, Quincy. 
Anyway. Ah, oh, right, right. Uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, one more thing. So this doesn't come up on iOS, right? There is no iOS equivalent of this because there is no ability to take an SD card and shove it into an iPhone to give the iPhone more storage. But one of the things that people like about Android is that you can aftermarket stick more storage into your, into some Android phones if they have the physical slot to stick the card into. Right? The OS allows it, whether or not your particular handset does is up to your handset maker. An issue until now has been that while you have full disk encryption on the internal storage that's shipped with your phone, there's been a lot of security problems where apps are using the expandable storage to store sensitive information and that information isn't actually protected from other apps seeing it and that's a problem. Not with Android Q. They're going to have effectively per app firewalled off storage on the SD card. So that something that app one writes to the SD card will not be readable by app two if app one says make this private. Oh, that's nifty. It's very nifty. So it basically means that it is, you can now securely use the external storage. And that that's nice. That's just a really nice feature. Um, so, you know, better location, less tracking, and more secure expandable storage. They all seem like really nice features. So that's something Android users can look forward to for Android Quince or whatever it's going to be called. Then again, good news about Google. Um, Google's Project what? Zero has at times been controversial for sticking rigidly to their 90 days. But they have, right. over time, developed a more reasonable attitude. And we now know just how reasonable they can be. We now know that they have spent a year working with Microsoft to fix a problem they discovered. So I'm assuming because Microsoft oh, wow. engaged with them very strongly, they didn't disclosed, but basically the two companies worked extremely closely together to get to the bottom of this problem and fix it. The actual minutiae of the problem are propeller beanie on steroids, right? A a, a propeller beanie strong enough to carry your weight in a Mary Poppins style (laughs) way, right? So I'm not going into it. But it was a difficult, it was a very subtle bug and a difficult one to fix. And a difficult one even to figure out how exploitable it may or may not be. But anyway, Microsoft and Google spent a year working together. They now know that it is not currently exploitable in Windows. However, they re-architected things so that it becomes definitely not exploitable in the future. So the spring update for Windows 10, which will be 1903, so March 2019, 1903, that update will include some changes under the hood which will make this, which will neuter this bug. And they're also advising driver developers to change their habits in a few ways so as to avoid their driver being vulnerable to this particular style of attack. Um, So it's all good news. And I'm particularly heartened by the fact that after 90 days, they didn't throw us all under the bus, that Google bent their rules to continue to engage with Microsoft to get to this very positive outcome. Okay, so that was, I, I was hoping you were going to circle back to what this had to do with Project Zero was the, it was, they acknowledged it was such a hard problem that we have to work on it together to figure it out. Yeah. And so they found it. People to yeah, it. they found it. They told Microsoft and Microsoft engaged with Project Zero and went, help us. And the two together fixed this. Very positive. Cats and dogs living together. I mean, this is, this is an odd time we're in. It is. And I mean, the Project Zero group, are they're different to regular Google. And it's good to see that. 
So I, I was really heartened by this. I think it's a really good story. Um, good news for people who use Macs within corporations. You may think this is better news than it really is because a lot of the headlines left out some key points. So Microsoft are rebranding Windows Defender. Why are they rebranding it? Well, they're, firstly, they're rebranding it to Microsoft Defender. And the reason is because their enterprise version is coming to the Mac. Now, that's a very important little caveat there. The enterprise version of Windows Defender is becoming Microsoft Defender. It is part of Microsoft's Advanced Threat Protection Suite. So unless you're a corporate or education customer who pays extra for ATP, you're not getting this. This is not free Windows Defender now, free on the Mac. This is very expensive corporate advanced threat protection now protecting your Macs as well as your Windows PCs. But that's still really good for large organizations. Yeah, yeah, that does sound really good. Yeah, uh, another caveat. Offline about the advantages of that advanced threat protection suite. It's pretty cool stuff. ATP is great. I mean, it's a whole it's a whole suite of things, but there's there's a lot in it, and I, I really like it, actually. I'm a, I'm a big fan of ATP. And the Accidental Tech Podcast as well. But the Advanced Threat Protection Suite from Microsoft is also very good. Uh, it was also said, you know, Microsoft release... That's not true. There's a preview available to some customers at the moment. It's not actually released yet, but it's on the way. Um, and it's, I, I was really happy, actually. Um, yeah, no, I know a lot of people are smiling about this. This is, this is a big thing. Give them just a couple of things you told me about the advanced threat protection. Yeah, so ATP is a whole suite of stuff. And a lot of it is it really comes into play in corporate environments. So it... It uses AI to learn what's normal for your users. And so if your users normally use a VPN or whatever, then it's not going to alert if they're just using their normal VPN. But if all of a sudden your user who normally uses a VPN shows up in both Italy and Germany at exactly the same time, and it's not through a VPN they've used before, that will trigger as an impossible login. And that will send an alert to your admin saying there's something this is out of the norm for, you know, Bob doesn't usually do this. You may want to check in with Bob. Um, you can also it doesn't do shut you down or anything immediately, right? It depends, right? So you, you as an admin with ATP can decide policies for what to do. So ATP offers alerts when this happens. Sort of an if this, then that. And so you can say that if ATP detects an impossible login, then. And so your initial then might simply be log it. Or your then might be lock them down. Or lock them down okay. if it happens twice within a day. Or, or trigger me to call them on the phone. Exactly. So you you as an organization set your policy. So ATP gives you all of these different flags that it can raise. And then you as an organization decide what you want ATP to do when that flag is triggered. And so you can do all sorts of cool things like saying that if an email arrives to our organization from outside of our Microsoft tenancy then prepend the subject heading of the email with the word external in square brackets. Which means if someone fishes you, so the from name is the name of your president or whatever, of your organization, it'll have a giant big square bracket, external square bracket. And that's immediately going to make you go, why is, why is Sir Bob all of a sudden not in my organization anymore? And then you look a bit close and go, oh, they look, they've transposed the two letters of our corporation's name. And this is actually a phishing email. Oh, very clever, but not cleverer than me. Just lots of these little things. Um, so it's, 
it's a powerful suite of tools. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail because. Sure, sure. You know, that's, I, that's plenty. My employer is not on this podcast. I am. But I have direct experience with ATP and I like it. Yeah, I mean, I like that Microsoft is investing in protecting Macs in the enterprise. That's that's very cool. Yeah, I mean, Macs have been compatible with AD for ages. Um, so you can just throw all of your Macs into your Active Directory and you can... Uh, Microsoft's um, uh, device management, MDM, is fully Mac and iOS compatible. So if you use Intune, you can manage your iOS devices and your Macs all through your Office 365. Hmm. Through Intune. It's pretty good. Like, Microsoft... I'm telling you something... Steve Ballmer's Microsoft is unrecognizable uh, when you're used to Satya Nadella's Microsoft. Whole different animal. I'm running Linux VMs in Microsoft's cloud, and you know something? They work great. They can pre-configure really well. start calling you Microsoft Bart. Yeah, look, I like being the customer and the user at the same time. It fits my view of the world pretty darn well, actually. So, yeah. I, I I do like modern Microsoft. I Still detest ye oldie Microsoft, but I like modern Microsoft. Anyway, uh, pro-privacy social media site MeWe, terrible name, but anyway, has reached 4 million users. It's a lot of users, but it's a long way off Facebook. Nonetheless, it's a nice milestone, uh, which sort of triggered me to do my whole are you free, free for now, freemium, or freepee question. I can tell you they are not freepy. They are freemium. They are basically the Slack model. Premium products aimed at the enterprise, free products aimed at home users. I have to say I'm disappointed in, in MeWe, though. I um I got a MeWe account a while ago just for, you know. Yeah, I see what it's up. about, right? What the heck? Yeah, and then um, when Google Plus shut down, I'm a member of a an Olympus Micro Four Thirds user group from australia which, okay if you talk about a niche topic but it's they're really passionate about it and a lot of fun really great guys and uh a guy named ananda sims i think his last name is uh runs it anyway they decided to go to miwi but every time i log in i am propositioned by men and women lovely i mean there's there's disgusting stuff every time i've been really i mean i've been shutting it down it's like uh, i don't want to deal with that that's disappointing that out of their 4,000 members, most of them seem to be not there for the best of reasons. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't say everybody's, like, there is a lot of content that's real, but it's just, I don't expect to see it every time. Yeah, they have a problem getting their house in order then. That's not good. That's not good. Anyway, they have reached 4 million users, whatever that means. Um, also, in, definitely in the good news category, DARPA is spending $10 million building an open-source secure voting system. Um, Motherboard have a nice article on it, and also, actually, this week's Security Now delves into it in some nice detail. They're doing this right. And, of course, being DARPA, that doesn't surprise me. So it's very interesting. And it's going to be released as an open standard, so they're basically it's an open-source open hardware and open-source software for that's lovely. And it's verifiable voting. Using cryptographic hashing and so forth, it will be possible for you to verify that your vote is part of the final tally and is in the direction that you intended it to be without it being possible hmm. to know how you voted. Cryptography makes that hmm. possible. It's amazing. It's it's just right. It's 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 so good to see 
our amazing modern technology used so well. It's it's wonderful. So you know, security now do a great job breaking it down. No, no paper trail though. Oh yes, absolutely. Oh, yes, it, it is. Okay, I miss that. Okay. Uh, one of the features of the paper trail is that the machine reader doesn't read a different barcode. The machine reader reads the human readable part. So the humans and the machines are reading the same thing. Oh, nice. Yeah, because a lot of the modern ones that have a paper trail, the machine reads something different to the human, which is not actually properly verifiable, right? That's actually really right. open to abuse. That's the opposite. Yeah. So no, this is this. Yeah, they really did this right. They thought of all of the different things. I'm very impressed. And then our final story here, which is also very much in the good news column, Fire or Mozilla have released a new product for securely and easily sending large files across the internet. It's called send.firefox.com. And it does basically end-to-end encryption and sends large files. Really easy to use. So a nice way to share files with people. I did a little experiment with that. Sent something to Stephen Getz in Canada. Just grabbed some file. Of course, I forgot to tell him I was sending it to him. No, yeah, but of course. With, uh I think it's a one gigabyte limit if you don't log in and two gigabytes if you do log in and you cannot pay them for more. Two and a half gigs if you're logged in. And you cannot pay them for more. Right. But there are many, many apps for breaking files into parts. Yeah. So why why would it be you get more if you give them your information? Does that make you have pause there at all? No. That's called throttling it so that your servers don't fall over in a heap. Making yeah, someone why, set up an account, I... it, it puts a throttle on drag drop. This is just too easy. It puts a throttle on bots because you have to go through a sign up process. It's it's throttling. It, it, yes, it could be malicious, but there's no reason to assume it's malicious, right? There are all sorts of reasons for having different barriers for whether or not you have users that you have actually a relationship with. It doesn't set off my alarm bells. It seems like it should still to me. It seems like if you if you are giving them some information, then you get you get more. I've just paid with my no, information. No, no. Okay, but you're choosing to interpret it that way. If you log in, you get to do more because now you've had to go through an account creation process where the bots have been weeded out. Okay, if it is about bots, then yeah, then I follow you. I, I, I follow you. Okay. I mean, it, it, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what's in their brains, but... You the, could the, say that could be a reason. That is yeah. as valid a reason as the, shall we call it, the Facebook rationale. Yeah. Okay. So they're both valid interpretations, but there's no reason to assume maliciousness. And the Mozilla Foundation are a charitable foundation with a mission I agree with and a long history of living up to their stated aims. Okay. I did not know they were a charitable foundation. I assumed it was since it ended in the word foundation. Yes. Now, the Mozilla Foundation own Mozilla Corporation, which they use to do a whole bunch of stuff, but ultimately it all comes back to the nonprofit. You don't want to spend too long going down it, but there is a Mozilla Corporation and a Mozilla Foundation. Okay. One one owns the other. Good. The foundation owns the corporation. So the corporation... Go ahead. So the corporation makes money for a non-profit to fund its charitable work. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, this is how modern charities work. But anyway, yes, it, it, is, it is. Should we try transferring the, uh, the, the podcast files with it today? How's the way we do it tomorrow when, when we're not in a rush? But yes, we should give it a go. 
<laughs> I don't know. Tomorrow I'll be scared. But anyway, okay. We'll play so, with it. Yes. So that takes us to suggested reading. There's a few here I want to draw your attention to quickly. Um, PSA's tips and advice. There is currently a malware campaign ongoing trying to extort users with fake emails claiming to be from corrupt FBI, CIA agents offering to help you destroy the evidence of the child porn case they're building against you. It's, it's a wonderful double bluff, right? Yeah, so the yeah. CIA are investigating you, and I'm one of them, but I'm corrupt, so if you pay me off, I'll stop this investigation. Okay. Oh, wow. It's horse poop, but nice try. Uh, basically, don't fall for it. That That is not how the world works. Don't Don't give in. Uh, but wouldn't it be the only people caught by that would be people who had child pornography, so yay? Oh, no. No, 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 no. People people believe, especially when you tell them you're a corrupt agent, people will... Like, just being accused of that is enough to ruin your life. There doesn't have to okay. be a snifter oh, of yeah. truth. Yeah. That is enough to scare anyone. It's, you know... It, it, I mean, it's fiendishly clever. I get your point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the FTC are warning of phone-based tax scams in the US being up 20-fold since 2017. It is tax season in the US. Just because it comes in as a voice call doesn't mean it's fine. Right? There is a whole thing called vishing. And even hmm. smishing. I don't know if you're familiar with that little term. It's phishing over that- SMS. Sm- How smishing. do you say it? Smishing. Smishing. So SMS phishing, smishing. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Brian Krebs is warning US citizens that if you have an existing freeze with Equifax, you need to sign up to their new My Equifax portal before someone else does because it's very easy to pretend to be you on that portal and cancel your credit freeze. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Notable breaches and privacy violations. This section is really full. I just want to mention two. Uh, There was a giant big breach at a company who sell verification services for mass mailing lists. It's called verifications.io. They basically collect information on billions of people, uh, which spammers can use to make sure their spam lists are accurate. They charge spammers to validate their spam lists. So you can imagine what's in their database. Well, the answer is 2 billion records and counting. Uh, deduplicated 2 billion records and counting. And they include things like name, email address, phone number, street address, gender, date of birth, amount of mortgage and interest rate of said mortgage, and Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram accounts, as well as a characterization of your credit score i.e. average, above average, etc. So not your actual score, just what pigeonhole it falls into. So th- this is... Is this part of an existing set of data that nope. we already knew about? This nope. is all new? All new, because this company built their own database that they then accidentally left on the internet without a password. So this company basically lost their crown jewels, and their crown jewels are 2 billion people's private data. Uh yeah. How are they allowed to have that in the first place? Because in America, you don't have a right to your own data. It's theirs. If they gather it, it's theirs, not yours. In Europe, yeah. it's yours, and companies get to use it if they're careful with it. It's literally the inverse of how the law works. 
if you go around and spy on people, you own the data you collected. In Europe, the data belongs to the person it's about, and you get to use it as a corporation. It's just a whole different legal framework. There is a whole big kerfuffle about Fortnite, or rather about Epic, spying on Steam on your computer. I don't fully understand this or how important it is, but it made an awful lot of people very cranky. So if you're a Steam and Fortnite user, links in show notes to help yourself. Hmm. And frankly, there's lots more, but I'm enough depression. (laughs) Uh, There's some very interesting stuff in suggested reading news, but I want to, I want to highlight two things. Uh, The first is a patent filing from Apple which describes a way of using lasers to allow face ID to tell twins apart. Oh, jeez. Using subdermal bloody blah It <laughs> sounds really cool. Even if this exact technology never comes into an iPhone, which it probably won't, because Apple generally wouldn't patent it before releasing the product if it was something they were actually going to release, what it shows undoubtedly is that Apple are working at getting face ID to tell twins apart. And that can only be a good thing. Um, and then I, I sort of feel like you're 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 working on the last point zero 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 one percent, right? Well, but it's the thing is, right now FaceTime isn't only put off by twins; it's also put off by siblings and some parent child as well. That's true. And you meant Face ID? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, the next story gets a little editorial by me to prefix it, right? Do not believe that any company is too sophisticated to fall for phishing. It can happen to anyone. So don't feel bad if it happens to you and don't get complacent. that Oh, my staff are far too smart to fall for that. No, they're not. I can prove it to you because a guy just pleaded guilty to successfully phishing Facebook and Google for $121 million. What? Yeah, a couple of false invoices, spearfish to the right people. Happens. How much did they get? $121 million. Holy cow. From Facebook and Google. But they caught him. Yeah, I mean, the guy who pleaded guilty, the guy who pleaded guilty and is going to, probably going to jail, but. Okay. It, you know, the point is, he successfully got the money out of Facebook and Google. So if it can happen to Facebook and Google, it can happen to you. And I didn't put a star next to this, but it's too funny not to. John Oliver has bombarded the FCC with anti-robocall robocalls. <laughs> I love John Oliver. Just just want to say that. I've seen that he's been really on a rampage about robocalls. Which is great. Someone needs to take it up and, you know, can't do better than John Oliver. There are some really fascinating reads in opinion and analysis. Um, the first one is more, look, we know this already, but let's just remind everyone don't sell your thumb drives secondhand because it's really hard to wipe them securely. Uh, and also don't buy them secondhand because most of them are full of malware. And I do mean most. 66% were found to contain malware. And the majority of them were found to contain one or more either unencrypt, or like just sitting there, private documents, or easy to recover, easy to undelete private documents. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. So basically, take your thumb drives, smash them up, and throw them away. Or recycle them wow. in some way. Don't turn them back into thumb drives. And don't buy them secondhand. Wow. Um, a very interesting piece from Axios, what Google knows about you. We've all been fixated on Facebook because they have just been so egregious. But don't forget Google's existence. The Axios article is an interesting read. 
very different but equally fascinating. Um, Fast Company have a really good look at the people behind the scenes of this whole data industry, the data brokers who sit behind Facebook and Google and between them and the advertisers and are just basically reselling data all over the place behind your back. These are nameless, faceless companies making an absolute fortune on your data. And thanks to a law in Vermont, I think it is, there's now some visibility into the operation of these companies and Fast Company break down what we know. And even they say, what we know now is a lot more than we used to know, but is very, very little of the overall. Uh, So that's definitely fascinating. Okay. And then lastly, uh, child-friendly search engines, how safe is Kiddy or Kiddle, sorry, uh, which is an oh, interesting one from Naked them. Security. So I think we need some palate cleansing, and you, you you were one of the many people who, who, who wanted to do this first one. So do, do you want to try to describe it? So uh, Bloomberg Businessweek put a uh, picture of uh, the robot known as uh, Mark Zuckerberg on the cover of the magazine. And it's a great picture. It's from his testimony in front of Congress, and, he, you know, he just, he just looks like a robot. He looks so ridiculous, but covered over his face in uh, green, bright green on on this darker background. It says a bunch of what looks like code. Switch mm-hmm. public apology. Squirrely bracket case. Quote empathetic. Set vision. Dot make eye contact. Delay. Dot then and then there's an arrow function. Huh? It's JavaScript. This is JavaScript. Is. It is actually JavaScript. Okay. This says speak, quote, I am sorry. And it says raise core temperature by 1.05. Anyway, it goes on down. It's it's absolutely hilarious. It'll be in the show notes. You can see the picture yeah, of tears it. Tears to two, delay, then wipe tear, return null. <laughs> Default, return, user harvest. <laughs> Version 6772B3. <laughs> I mean, the apology machine is how they titled the issue. Um, which gives you a pretty good idea of, you know, and the subhead is Facebook says it cares. Is that enough? The obvious answer being no, it isn't. And you're dead right, Bloomberg Business Week. Did they apologize? This was before this week's news. This was before this week's news. Yeah. So what I love about this is Bloomberg Business Week is not a tech magazine. This is a mainstream business magazine making a fantastic programmer joke. Thank you. I think that is so nice to see really happy about I that. Heard, I heard somebody say that this uh, may have made up for the article they did about uh, Apple and, and the other companies and claiming those chips were uh, defiled. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and I will say that that was a different branch of Bloomberg. So that was not Bloomberg Business Week. That was Bloomberg's Washington Bureau had published that uh, okay. catastrophe so of an article. To to travesty of an that. article that has not been retracted or followed up on, by the way. They've just dropped that little turd and sodded off. Very, very poor show. Yeah. So these are different journalists within Bloomberg. So these are good. These are the good guys. I like these guys. Uh, I want to give a recommendation. Now, you, I gave this recommendation to you, Alison, uh, a week or two ago, and I think you've already listened to the podcast. But anyway, I, there, there's an audio podcast I love called American Innovations. Um, it's by a guy called Stephen Berlin Johnson, who did a really good series on PBS called How We Got to Now, which I also highly recommend. Um, and it's basically a series of mini-series. And, I mean, they're all fascinating, but the current miniseries celebrates Women's History Month. 
And so instead, usually the miniseries is one story that spreads over five episodes. But in this case, the miniseries is separate stories about separate women in tech and how they have made a massive impact on the world. And usually they're names we should know, but don't. And the first one blew my mind. So the first one is about a lady called Margaret Hamilton, who invented software engineering in the process of putting man on the moon. Why don't we know about Margaret Hamilton? And I answered, I did know about Margaret Hamilton a little bit because I got the uh, Lego women of, of, uh, of NASA set from my son Kyle and one of them is Margaret Hamilton. And so I was like, hmm, I wonder who she is. And I looked her up. But I still learned quite a bit more about her from this podcast than I did making the Lego set. Yay. And I was actually really impressed with my better half because I recommended this podcast wholeheartedly. I went, oh, yeah, I've heard of her. There's a great picture of her standing next to a stack of source code that's almost as tall as her. And I was like, actually, that's the opening of the podcast episode. <laughs> They described that photo. I didn't know. I did not know what that was. I knew it was a stack of white things in the Lego brick bricks, but I didn't uh, catch that. It was a stack of fanfold source code. Yeah, on a yeah. dot matrix. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that's a lot of source I, code. I, I think the part of the this story that I found most interesting was where they talked about how she wanted to do some uh, error checking, and they told her, "No, the pilots won't make any mistakes." Yeah. <laughs> That, she also that laughed didn't work them. out. Yeah. Yeah, actually, the, the, yeah. Anyway, absolutely fascinating episode. Uh, and since since then, actually, the episode two has come out equally fascinating, completely different, uh, completely different, but hair-straightening products. But uh, Again, what is the name of the podcast? Because I don't see it in the show notes. American Innovations. It's about the sixth or seventh word into the sentence. Ah, there it is. Okay. And you've got a link to it in, in Overcast. Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. Uh, the Very quickly, as mentioned, Fast Company revealed something to me I find fascinating. New York City, are you? they have a font made of physical trees, a typespace made of trees. In other words, they are writing what? messages in their parks by planting trees in a row. Ash for A, beach for B. They spell out oh, things no. in actual no. physical trees. And so... When you have the font, you can read the park. Okay, that's that's great. How much can they write? Well, one character per tree. It's, it's literally one letter per tree. So in Central Park, oh, they could write a novel. Oh, that's true. Oh, that is hilarious. That's, that's really cool. That is it's so fun. Um, another one from the New York Times, a very fun animated graphic, how the internet actually travels across oceans. We think of the cloud as just being this ethereal thing. No, it isn't. It's a bunch of fiber optics that some extremely smart engineers have managed to put across the oceans, where you have things like trawlers trying to drag them up, and the planet splitting in half along fault lines trying to rip them apart, and yet the internet works. So we have engineered around this. It's fascinating stuff. Oh, and then the last, the last one is a game that challenges you to try to be random. You will fail. Oh. It's, it's very straightforward. You just got to be random. And every time you're successfully... Basically, it tries to guess your next move. And every time it guesses right, it takes away some pretend money. And every time you <laughs> guess right, you get some pretend money. You will lose all of your pretend money every time. Oh, that's fun. I am going to go play this. 
it's I already knew humans were terrible at being random. I've been saying it for years. That's why XKPassWD exists. But I now have a fun game to prove my point. We're terrible at being random. We just can't oh, do it. Great. Okay, it. that's our palette thoroughly cleansed. That is great. Well, this was really good. I know I I uh, I had originally told Bart he shouldn't go long. I had a lot of stuff going on, but it worked out. My uh, schedule cleared, and I think this was really good. This is great. Yeah, it was fun. Basically, I put all the stuff in suggested reading, so instead of skating over it, we got to dig into it. So, hey, worked out good. Yeah, fantastic. Well, all right, Bart. Well, we'll see you in a couple of weeks on this topic. Indeed we shall, and we shall talk more soonly on the other. We'll be writing some more JavaScript, although not about tear ducts to two, delay, and then wipe tear. But, uh, you know, we'll be playing with mustaches rather than tears. But we'll be doing that soon. Anyway, until the next time, stay patched and stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter. Where do you think it is? At podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com slash whatever it is you're looking for. You want to become a cool kid like Yope and be part of the Patreon community? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Hate Facebook? Love Slack? Go to podfeed.com slash slack. We got space for you over there. Want to join the live chat room uh, like on Monday at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific time during the Apple announcement just to chat in the chat room? Podfeed.com slash chat. Want to uh, use those Amazon affiliate links? How do you think you do it? Podfeed.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time like Birdman did after a really long absence, enjoy the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.